Books and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Hey, Amy. You know what I just realized? What's that? A ton of our guests who have been on the perks of being a book lover to talk about reading and books are from organizations that are taking part in this week's Give for Good Louisville. You're right. Kentucky Shakespeare was the first organization that agreed to chat with us and helped us get the ball rolling with this show. And there have been so many others. The Filson Historical Society, the Fraser History Museum, Louisville Literary Arts, Pandora Productions. And Forward Radio is part of Give for Good Louisville, too, which gave us a spot each week to broadcast for all the book lovers out there. Please consider going to giveforgoodlouisville.org anytime on September 17th and donate whatever you can to help Forward Radio reach its goal of $4,000. And remember all the cool organizations that you've learned about from the perks. They need your support, too. Did you know the use of audiobooks is on the rise? While print format and ebooks are still the most popular, it's only the audiobook format that's grown in popularity over the last few years. Audiobooks have some great qualities. They're easy to listen to while doing other tasks like commutes in the car and exercise. They're perfect for modern busy lives of multitasking. But they also can add a whole new layer of interest to a story if in the hands of a deft and talented narrator. At least a third of the books Carrie and I talk about on the show are audiobooks, and including them in your life is one of the best ways to increase your reading time. Our guest today, Chris Kepler, is an actor and audiobook narrator who's narrated over 50 books in her career. She uses her own studio located in her home in Washington State. She's also a consultant for other people who want to do what she does, including authors who want to narrate their own audiobooks. Chris talks to us about how her opera background has helped her perform better as an audiobook narrator, why narrating books is a particularly fun job for an actor who always wants to play all the roles, and why she never auditions for books she doesn't enjoy. Our guest this week is Chris Kepler. She is an audiobook narrator, producer, and consultant, and she also does a ton of other stuff. So Chris, thanks so much for being here and and talking with us on The Perks. Oh, you're welcome. I'm excited to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be an audiobook narrator. Well, I've been an actor for a little over 20 years. I started out in stage and then moved on to film. And I have an IMDb page, which, yeah, I didn't think that was important until I told somebody at a part-time workplace that I had an IMDb page. He like screamed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this is important to some people. (laughs) So can you explain for those who may not know what an IMDb page is? It's the internet movie database. So you can look up Anything about any production on it, it tells you uh, what actors are in it. If you're, you want to know what your favorite actor is up to, if the producer on whatever production they're 
working on has uploaded it. It will tell you all the crew, tells you what's happening with that production. And then I also have a video game credit out there. So they also load video games too. So if you're thinking, oh, I wonder what's up with this video game? You can go out there and lots of times there's information loaded about your favorite video games. It's like, oh, I wonder who's voicing that character. You can find out. Yeah, that's how I've always interacted with it when I'm binge watching a show and I yep. want to know who is that actor? I've seen them in something else before, but yep. I can't remember what it is. Yeah. IMDb pops up to tell yep. me when I ask. Yes, it yep. will tell you all that interesting stuff. Yeah. Before we get into the nitty gritty about what you do as an audiobook narrator, tell us a little bit about the types of books that you read both, you know, when you were younger as a kid, what the foundation of your reading life looked like, and then also what does it look like now? When I was a kid, I've never been particularly drawn to the classics, so I haven't read a lot of classics. I like thrillers and suspense. And so I read, a, I still read a lot of that. As I got older, I got into science fiction, still love science fiction. I'm a Trekkie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and now my favorite is to read uh, suspenseful thrillers. I don't like spy stuff, uh, but it's more contemporary thrillers, especially around crime. I'm sort of a true crime aficionado where I like true crime stuff and I like fictional crime also yeah you know they usually give you a, a free kindle download the beginning of each month or every so often and I'm always going to be downloading the suspense out there that's always what I gravitate to yeah yeah because you do get one free download a yeah. month usually yeah. so you're always picking yeah. the true crime or the uh, thriller true, yeah true crime or the thriller as long as it's not a spy thing so how did you get into the audiobook narration business was it was it an accidental thing or something no, that you went no. about to do on purpose well uh, I been you know acting for quite a while and I love using my acting skills and then I was a singer in fact I started out as a singer started out as a singer in junior high choir and continued for many years and so I got into voiceover because I just really love voiceover because it melded my acting and my singing skills in fact, when I step in front of the mic now, I'm still using my singing skills every time. And, and so I got into voiceover. And of course, it's a natural progression for any actor to move into audiobooks because it's almost every actor's dream to play all the parts. <laughs> <laughs> you get to play all the parts. <laughs> it's just a natural thing for an actor to, to audiobooks. Yeah. You said that you use your your singing training yes. when you narrate an audiobook. So yes. how so? Well, it helps in saving my voice that it doesn't get as tired uh, because I, I'm actually trained in opera. Oh, and wow. And so where, yeah, where you've got producing a huge amount of output and not wanting to kill your voice at the same time. So I'm generally using a lot of my opera training and it's where I'm pitching my voice. You know, does this call for a higher pitch? Does this call for a lower pitch? Just depending on where I want the narration to lie as far as, you know, the book itself, what pitch is suitable for that book. 
And of course, she used it a lot if I'm doing a character. Mm. I'm, you know, putting the pitch all over the place. Whether it's a fairy (laughs) or whether it's a guy. (laughs) (laughs) So I use it a lot, especially I'm doing characters, to get the right pitch for that character. Is that something where you have to make connections with publishing companies? Or are there things on job boards where they say, we need an audiobook narrator? Oh, there's things on job boards. Some of the freelance sites like Upwork, I see audiobooks come through. And that's actually where I got my, started with my first major jobs was freelance sites, people wanting audiobook narrators. That's how I segued. And then, of course, there's ACX.com, where authors go to look for, they go there actually to upload their audiobooks, but then there's also where they can go and they can put their book out there and have narrator producers bid on them. There's and like so, this whole world I don't even yeah. know about. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, I'm out there and I regularly audition for books. Larger publishers have a site now you can sign up for that their producers can go through and look for narrators. I'm on there too. And then I spend a lot of time reaching out to authors directly and people who coach authors because they often don't know a lot about audiobooks and maybe they've got their authors asking about it and it's like oh well I can send you to this person because I'm you know really busy just with helping with writing and editing and stuff and I I really don't want to know anything about audiobooks but I can send them to you to learn about audiobooks. So when Amy and I started tossing around questions that we wanted to ask you I couldn't Uh help but think about when I and I don't call it narration. I just read yes. b- before uh-huh. bed to my kids. Yeah. Well, whether it's a book I've read before or a book that's new to me, like sometimes when I'm reading, I will lose the thread of the story. So I'm curious about like the process of when you're narrating. If you have a book, do you read the book first and sort of comprehend and wrap your head around characterization and stuff like that? And then you narrate? Talk to us a little bit about what what you do when you're narrating. Oh, yeah. Always read the book first. Always. And make notes about characters, what I want to do with the character voice. Sometimes the author will give a description like a comedic book that I did several years ago, the villain was described as sounding like Speedy Gonzalez. (laughs) I went out and I watched Speedy Gonzalez cartoons. (laughs) That was part of the prep. (laughs) So you got to watch out for things like that because especially if an author has described a voice, you're going to have to somehow match that description as close as you can. So yeah, I'm making notes about characters. If I have a lot of characters spread out, I did a a YA book that had, oh my gosh, dragons and saber-toothed cats and fairies and good wizards and bad wizards and old wizards and and a prince and a princess. <laughs> I make notes about each character so I remember where I'm supposed to be at because they might come in in chapter three and then you don't hear from them again until chapter 12. So yeah, you need notes to remember what you were doing. In that case, I assigned a specific emotion to each character, an underlying emotion. Like the hero was always going to sound like this somewhat, even if he was kind of distressed, he was still the hero. <laughs> so I've heard some narrators actually record a small snippet 
of each character. And then when they know that character's coming up, you know, and like in the next chapter, they listen to Mm. see. Yeah. I was going to ask about that because if it were me and I had that many characters, I would forget what one of the early characters, what I made them sound like. Yeah. You have to make notes. You have to make notes and then you go back. How long do you think so, it takes you to prepare to do an audiobook? Like with, you know, the reading and the making notes and how much preparation time do you have? You know, it depends on the book. Certainly ones with characters are going to take longer. I'd say you'd spend, you know, spend at least half an hour to an hour on characters. And sometimes, you know, some nonfiction books are really straightforward. It's just reading making a few notes, and maybe you spend a half an hour, you know, looking up. Pronunciation is another thing. You'd be Mm. surprised at how many things you thought you knew how to pronounce that. Oh, for the last 10 years, I've been saying that wrong. (laughs) Yeah. So, and sometimes it's going to take longer because I had a book I did recently that had some Spanish phrases. Mm. I'm not particularly familiar with Spanish, although I am with Italian. Uh, Because singing opera, I sang a lot of Italian opera, which made it a little easier. But sometimes I just, I had to look it up. It's how do I say that name? And so that that takes a little longer looking up specific pronunciations, specific names. And I did a whole series on Wicca. And that was filled with old Irish, oh my gosh, which looks nothing like Mm -hmm. it sounds. Or Welsh, oh my gosh. So did you have to have someone come in and like teach you some basics on how to pronounce things in Gaelic or Welsh? No, no. I Actually, there's a pretty good database. It's called Forvo. And that database has a lot of, especially if you're looking for Norse, Irish, you're anything European. It's, it's a great database. They have good pronunciations out there. And there's a lot of stuff on the internet, but Forvo is one of the ones I trust the most that I find the most correct pronunciations in. And it often has multiple pronunciations in multiple languages. Does being a narrator, and and I realize you only know what's in your head, but you know, whenever I'm reading a book, there's always like a voice in my head and I'm not always aware of that. So does being a narrator affect, you know, if you're just reading a book for fun, does that affect the voice in your head that you might normally develop as you're reading a book just for fun? Do you ever find like you have these competing voices? No, no, I didn't. I think it's because for me, it's easy to separate out fun reading from this is my job. I'm an actor and I'm going to be looking at the characters from an acting point of view totally. Whereas where I'm you know, reading fun stuff. I'm not thinking about the acting at all. That's because I'm not an actor at that time. So, so you're not narrating every book that you read. I mean, no. for fun, you're not in your head narrating no. it. No, okay. no. Yeah. Because I'm not the actor. So you were saying that you have narrated some nonfiction books and it's a little yes. bit more straightforward. What strategies do you use to make a nonfiction book as engaging as, say, a fiction book where you don't have the different characters with the different voices and, and things like that? In uh, nonfiction, I'm still telling a story and I am interested in that story. Because if I'm not interested in the story, how is the listener going to be, you know? So 
I'm looking for uh, to tell that story. I'm expressing interest in what I'm narrating. And I also use the punctuation. Well, when you're being just a straight narrator in fiction, too, you're going to be paying attention to the punctuation. Do I need to emphasize? But what you run into in, in nonfiction is looking for words that the author has emphasized, so italics, and how do I need to get this point across? Oh, I think this is important, so I'm going to read this slower, or I'm going to pause a little longer here, um, especially in nonfiction, using the pauses to get the point across and keep it interesting. What you want to do, especially in nonfiction, is keep it interesting. So for me, when I'm listening to an audiobook, I think the best narrators are generally actors who are acting out the story or using the same acting skills for an audiobook as they would on stage. Yes. And I'm wondering, is it hard to do that type of performance when you're doing all the parts and you don't have other actors that you're interacting with like you would on the stage or in front of a camera? Yes, I think that's one of the hardest things about voice acting is you're not getting that feedback from the other actor. So, you know, when I'm when I'm doing characters and stuff, I'm imagining what is going on. Still, it's important to give your characters some backstory or understand their backstory. But that that's generally one of the hardest parts about voice acting. You don't have that extra feedback. So then it's up to you and your imagination to bring that story to life. You might be um, seeing that other character as you're speaking to them. So, but that's going to be using your imagination. They're not there. Tell us about the details of what a day narrating an audiobook would look like. So, how many hours a day would you typically work narrating? What happens if you flub a line? When you walk away from a day of narrating, what constitutes a successful day versus a day that you're like, oh, that was a dumpster fire? Well, Usually what I do is I narrate a chapter at a time. So I'm doing 15 to 30 minutes and I'm taking a little break. You know, I'm making sure that chapter is getting saved, that everything sounds good, that I have a good recording. And then I go back in and narrate some more. And I find I can do that about three to four hours and even then I'm getting a little tired after that. So I've heard some people who can go longer, but I think four to six as far as narration during a day is about what most people can do without getting really tired. Audiobooks are, you know, it's a marathon. You're running a marathon. <laughs> so is it tiring and, mentally or physically like for your vocal cords or both? It's tiring mentally and physically, and more it's a focus thing, you know, because it takes extreme focus. And holding that focus for a really long time is really tiring. And it's actually the same for acting. You know, if I'm doing a web series and I'm there for eight hours, I'm wiped at the end of that time. So acting itself takes a huge amount of mental focus. And just having that for very long periods of time, you, I just get mentally exhausted. So, you know, I need frequent breaks and I need to check what I've done. It sounds good and everything is good. So, 
And what happens if I flub a oh boy, flubbing a line? <laughs> you just go back to the beginning of that sentence and do it over again. Yeah. And you're yeah. doing it in a studio with sound engineers or things like that? No, I no? have my own studio. I have my own home studio. So it's just me doing it. And I also do editing. And actually for proofing, I use an automated program now from a company called Positron. And they've used uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, the machine goes through and compares what you've said to the script. Huh. And tells you where things are flubbed or where they think it's flubbed. Yeah, that has actually helped a lot. It's made the editing proofing process a lot simpler for me. So when you are doing the narrating, are you actually reading the book copy or is it made into a script for you like a play would be? No, I'm usually sometimes I'm actually reading the Kindle copy or more often than not nowadays, they've sent me the actual final manuscript. I'm reading from that on my tablet. What this program does is making sure that what you have read matches up with what the book is so like if you yep. accidentally uh -huh. missed a line or something it would catch that is what yeah, you're it would saying. catch that oh yeah it ca boy it catches a lot <laughs> it's it's brand new i think it's just been out for a year i was actually a beta tester on it because the company is here in seattle yeah because when you were talking about how you would have to narrate but then you would also proof it i mean yes. just having to listen like to say it once and then uh, having to listen to it again yeah, i know yeah. From Amy yeah. editing our show, you know, she just gets to the point where she's like, I can't listen to this again. I know. Yes. When you're editing podcasting, it's almost exactly the same as editing an audiobook. Only an audiobook is like three, four, five, six times as long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's what I say. It's they're marathons. They're they're marathons. Um, is it harder to narrate a book that you may not like? Yeah, it is. Generally, I, w I would shy away from ones that I find and I look at it and go, you know what? No, I'm not even going to bother <laughs> to audition for this. Cause... So do you read the book whole before you audition? Yeah, I haven't read it. I've just looked at the script, you know, or the, the little portion they've given us. And generally that tells you a lot. Uh, because generally the author has chosen a section that means a lot to them. And so you know that what you're auditioning for is what is important to them. You mentioned that you offer consulting help for people who want to narrate audiobooks. Yes. So, so what does that mean, like, to produce an audiobook? And tell us a little bit about that part of, of what you do. Yeah, there are actually a lot of authors out there who want to narrate their own book, or they think they want to narrate their own book. And so what I do is help them through that process, because they generally don't know anything about it at all. And it's not like you can sit in front of your computer and speak into the mic, and it's not going to pass quality control at Audible. And you don't want to spend all that time and then discover that you can't pass QC. Because they have very specific engineering standards, and you have to understand those engineering standards to get past quality control. Like what kind of what kind of standard uh, the, are you referring to? Audiobook standards are they're different from commercial standards. 
So I generally recommend if an author wants to self-narrate that they find a studio. And so they need to find a studio that understands audiobook standards because they're not commercial standards. It's the sound levels are different. Each chapter has to have one to five seconds of silence in front of it, about three to five seconds of silence at the end. So you got to know how to put those in. You needs to have a certain sound level floor. You don't want to hear any hiss or anything in the background. So you have to know how to make sure that doesn't happen. And it needs to be between minus 18 and minus 23 dB RMS. And so you got to know how to measure that. What, what does it refer to? It's a sound level. It's a sound okay. level. And you can't just look at what's on your recording software and say, oh, I think that looks good. I think that RMS is No. I have looked at stuff and thought, oh, the RMS on this is going to be fine. And then I put it through the RMS meter and no, it wasn't fine. It's not a good DIY kind of activity no, for a new author, is what no, you're saying. it is not. So that's what I'm doing is is helping. And sometimes I, authors, I think, don't understand just that they're going to be sitting in back of a mic for, you know, just a three-hour book is you're going to be sitting in front of a mic for maybe five or six hours. Some authors may be fine with that. Some authors, you know, it's like if you're going to be tearing your hair out, into hour two, hire a narrator. <laughs> right. Hire so narrator. Audible probably would not like what no. this recording is going to pick up with my cat no. meowing behind. No, okay. no, no, no. Just, that that I, would, I that would that. not pass quality. Control. No. <laughs> <laughs> so when you audition for a, an audiobook, is the author part of that decision on, on who's chosen for a narrator? Independent authors, yes, they're the usually the ones who are choosing the narrator. So if you're with a major publisher, no, the major publisher is, is most likely going to be the one choosing the narrator. You also have several podcasts that you work on as well, including yeah. one that's called Does This Happen to You, which is a comic yes. storytelling podcast. Yes. So tell us a yes. little bit about it. I love comedy. I love telling funny stories. I always have. That's that's been a big thing. I actually have a one-woman show that I wrote, and I've had it on stage a couple times, that's just funny stories about what's happened to me while working out at the gym. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very short podcast. It's just, you know, a short giggle for your week. I focus on personal first-hand experiences of just doing mundane things like grocery shopping and the weird things that sometimes happen, like going grocery shopping on a Saturday night and getting pulled into a threesome at the <laughs> wine tasting, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things like that. Um, and so are you writing these and then performing them, or are you just sort of doing them spontaneously. I, I actually I have narrated some of the stuff that I have written. I actually find that kind of difficult. I find it easier to narrate other people's funny work. Hmm. The mission of my podcast is actually to highlight writers and their stories 
A lot of them are authors. They're never going to put an audio book out, but they write wonderful stories. And so I'm getting them out there in audio format for people to listen to. So, oh, so it's not all you. You have other writers who yes, also have stories yes, on I, your show. Yes, I collaborate with, with other writers. So it's a collaborative project at this point. Yeah. And so do you find it different recording and editing the podcast as opposed to the books that you're narrating? You know, the process is pretty much the same. I don't have the back end QC as far as sound levels that I have to meet for passing quality control on Audible. I still pay attention to the sound level, but up until that point... Uh, it's pretty much the same. I treat it the same as, you know, narrating an audio book. As far as quality, it's very important to me that I put out a quality podcast that sounds good. I agree. That makes a huge difference, I yes. think, the sound quality. Yeah. How many years have you been narrating audiobooks? Five or six now, I think. Okay. Uh, it's been a while. I've done over 50 books now, and most wow. of them are published to Audible. So do you have a favorite kind of genre that you like to narrate? Actually, I have a, a mature, older voice. And so it has a tendency that the genres pick you rather than you picking oh. them. And my voice comes off as I can be authoritative, but I can also be nurturing. So I gravitate towards, well, health and wellness actually comes into that. I've done a lot of health and wellness books because my nurturing, caring tone goes well with those type of books. Also spirituality. And I've not only narrated, you know, Wicca, I've also narrated some Islamic stuff. It's anything to do with spirituality. I think it's the wise, caring part of my voice that fits uh, of course, I love to do comedy. Those don't come up very often. Well, you've got an amazing laugh. Yeah, <laughs> it's infectious. <laughs> uh, thank you. So when you are auditioning for yeah. different audiobooks, I mean, I imagine actors, I mean, they put out headshots and, you know, yeah. so if someone's looking for a young male, yeah. I, I don't know, let's are you categorized? Do you describe yourself as an older voice, a nurturing voice, or have people told you that that's what it sounds like? No, I have asked and people say caring, nurturing, mature. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm pegged. Okay. <laughs> that's okay. where I'm pegged. So yeah, that's. I, guess I was that's... wondering if there's like a file out there for, you know, <laughs> nurturing authoritative voices and you're in that file or something. Uh, yeah. That's the description I use for my voice because that's what I hear from people and that's what I get cast for. Mm -hmm. Now, that isn't true for all women because women can be older and still and have a very high pitched voice and they will still be able to voice. I can actually do young children. I can pretty good at, you know, putting my voice up there and doing a younger child. It's the, when you get to the tween to the twenties, I just, my voice is just not going to go there. So, but there are some women out there who maintain a higher pitch as even as they get older and they'll still be able to voice genres that will ask for a little younger voice, even though they are older. But my voice, I think has always sounded kind of nurturing and mature, even when I was younger. 
So I've never had a really high pitched or young voice anyway. I just think it's interesting the the range of different voices that someone could pick from. I guess somewhat it depends on what kind of story that you're telling, yes. what kind of yes. voice you would pick. Yes. So usually if your heroine is in the twen- in their 20s and it's from their point of view, you're going to want a voice that sounds like they're in their 20s. Now, it's possible a woman who's 40 could have a voice still that sounds like they're in their 20s or early mm-hmm. 30s. So it really depends on personally where where your voice lies. And and so you can guess I play the mom a lot. Yes. <laughs> or yes. the grandma. And that's, that's where I am in acting, too. So mm-hmm. sometimes in voiceover, depending on your voice, you can push that where you sit, but I can't at this point. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you think about acting, you know, women get different parts as they get older. And I guess I just didn't think about that being the case, even when you can't see somebody, you know, even their voice and being able to kind of tell an age or. Yes. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yes. I think the woman who plays Bart in the Simpsons, who voices Bart in the Simpsons is now in at least her 40s, she's still got a very high voice and it still fits. Yeah. Well, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to come back and talk about what we're reading. All right. We are back with Carrie and with Chris Kepler, and we are going to talk about what we're reading. So Carrie, tell me what your most recent one is that you're going to talk about today. This book, it came to mind yesterday. So the book is called Secret Louisville, A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure, and it's by Kevin Gibson. So actually, one of our guests from this spring, from season two, D.C. Alexander, had mentioned that he had read this book. DC's book was about the Derby. So it was related to a a story connected with the Derby. And so I thought, oh, you know, that book had all these things related to Louisville that I had never heard of. And I've lived here my whole life, right? So my mom actually bought the secret Louisville book. And I decided that after she read it, I was going to read it. This book has all sorts of weird information about Louisville. Now, some of the things and the places that it mentions, I did know about. So for example, uh, there is a building in downtown Louisville where Thomas Edison lived for a short time. It's one of the historic homes in Louisville. So I have visited there. Uh, One of my oldest and dearest friends was executive director there for a time. So, you know, there's some things in this book that I already knew about. But yesterday, I came upon one of the things that is mentioned in this book, and it's called The Chicken Steps. And I had never heard of the chicken steps, but these are steps that are in the Clifton area. My daughter was actually driving me because she's got her permit. Anyway, we were driving to her boyfriend's house. He lives in Clifton and I saw a sign that said chicken steps. So after she was safely deposited with her boyfriend, I drove back and had to check out the chicken steps. They're steps, but apparently people used to have chickens and the chickens would hang out on these steps. So, you know, from reading the book, I got the sense that it was like a long time ago. So, you know, when it was more 
rural. But I'm not entirely sure because the steps are concrete. And so I don't know if they were at one point maybe wooden steps that eventually became concrete steps or if people you know in the last 25 or 30 years had chickens you know because some people do have chickens and you know have their own egg laying situation in their backyard so I'm not entirely sure and I got way too excited (laughs) from chicken steps but there's other things in this book it talks about there's there's a place it's out close to Fort Knox, but it's called Fort Duffield. And my family, we actually went out there. So it's like an earthenware fort. And it was a nice hike. And it was pretty cool. And that was actually part of the Civil War battle. And you can at the top of Fort Duffield, you can look out and see the Ohio River. It was just a nice reminder to me. And especially with COVID, we're staying very close to home. We have not gone outside of the state of Kentucky. But it's kind of been a nice reminder that there are cool things, not just in Kentucky, but in every state. Pay a little bit more attention to the cool things that are around that you don't know about. I don't know that that's a series, but I think there might be similar books in other cities where they, you know, they find out little known facts or interesting tidbits about a city that the average person, even if you've grown up there, may not know about. I don't think that this book is part of that series. I think this is just kind of a standalone book. But yeah, it made me think that maybe once COVID is over and I'm more willing to venture outside the state, if I'm going to a particular spot, find one of those serialized books that just has weird stuff about that city. I think it's called Atlas Obscura which is a website and they have all sorts of weird stuff where you can search the places you're going. So Chris, what have you been reading? Well, I read a book called Don't Ever Forget by Matthew Farrell. It's one of those, one I like that's crime. Suspense. (laughs) Wow. It had amazing twists and turns and you had no idea what was really going on. The police weren't sure what was going on. And the people were involved in the escapade weren't quite sure what was going on. Wow. (laughs) So yeah, it was, it was one that I could hardly put down. I think it took me maybe a little more than a day to read it because like, okay, what's going to happen now? (laughs) Oh, wow. I prefer the kind that's got weird twists and turns Mm -hmm. and especially female because this one had the lead detective is is female that book is actually it's the first book in this series and it's brand new like i don't think it's actually being published published until september it's one of those specials off the kindle prime yeah you can get those early sometimes yes it's adler and dwyer book one It's set in the Northeast, in the New York, Pennsylvania area. And it's about a serial killer, but they haven't realized they even had a serial killer until they start delving into this old man and his nurse who are missing. And then a a state patrol officer gets murdered, uh, suspicious. You know, it's like, okay, what happened here? And it's essentially about what turns out to be serial killings. They didn't realize were even mm. serial killings. 
Until they delve into a state trooper getting murdered and a missing old man and his nurse. So what have you had going on, Amy? So I recently won a copy of a book called The Exiles by Christina Baker Klein, and I won it on a Goodreads giveaway. So this book is scheduled to come out, I think, at the end of August or beginning of September, and we're taping this in early August, so maybe it'll be out by the time this airs, and maybe the one that Chris talked about will be out by that time, too. Mm -hmm. But Christina Baker Klein is an author that many of our listeners may know. She had a very popular book a few years ago called orphan train that was very popular with book clubs. And it was about a social experiment in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where hundreds of thousands of orphans were sent on trains from the East Coast to the Midwest, where they could stop at towns along the way and children were adopted out. And sometimes they were adopted to loving families, but oftentimes they were given to people who were just looking for free labor on their farms or in their businesses. So this new book of hers is also a historical fiction novel, and it's about another type of social experiment, but this time it's set in Britain and Australia. And so The Exiles is about the practice by the British in the mid-1800s to send many of their convicts on ships over to Australia to finish out their sentences there as indentured servants. And this book focuses particularly on the female convicts. And so the story focuses on three main female characters. There's Evangeline, who is a young 20-year-old woman who is the daughter of a vicar, and she's very well educated. But when her father dies, she must go to work as a governess to support herself. And while she's in the family as a governess, she's seduced by an adult son of her employer. He gives her a ruby ring that belongs to the family. He goes away on a trip. One of the maids finds the ring and her things, tells the mistress of the house, who then has her arrested for theft. And so she's imprisoned and tried without the testimony of the young man. And then she's sentenced to transport to Australia. And in the meantime, she realizes that she's pregnant and the young man never comes to inquire about her at all. So the second character is Mathena, and she's an eight-year-old Aboriginal girl. And when the governor of Australia and his wife come to visit her village, the wife admires her and decides to take her home with them to be educated like a European. But she's treated more like a pet or a curiosity more than a child. So the, the, the wife never nurtures her or mothers her anyway. It's more like they're training her to be like a fancy party trick that they can bring out and have her do a ballroom dance or recite poetry or, or things like that. And then we finally have Hazel. And Hazel is a 16-year-old who finds herself on the transport ship with Evangeline. And she is sentenced to prison for stealing a silver spoon, really just a petty crime. And her mother, who's an alcoholic, sends her out as a pickpocket at a young age to help sustain them. And her mother was also a midwife and has taught her folk medicine and how to deliver babies. So she definitely has a, a particular skill that's useful. So through this journey, the book concentrates on the lack of rights for prisoners, especially of female convicts the horrible conditions in the jails and on the ships, the strange thinking of the time about the way children 
can be treated and about the ways European society thinks that they have to save non-Western societies. So the way the Aborigines were treated, some would say maybe they are still treated in that way. It's reminiscent of the way that Native Americans and African Americans have been treated in our country. So this was a super quick read. It pulls you in quickly and it's a great story. And I don't want to reveal too much, but there's a, there is one part of the story that I had a little bit of problem with, and that's Mathena's story. That's the child. And to me, it doesn't seem to flow with the rest of the book. Mathena's story is actually based on a true account of an Aboriginal child that was taken in by the governor and his wife. And the story of Evangeline and Hazel are based on research of the lives of convict women, but they're not specific real people. So to me, it was almost as if the author felt she had to include a piece about the plight of the Aborigines, even though that's not what the focus of the story was about. And I would have liked Mathena's story better as its own book. And the way it is, though, it seems almost like a second thought, which is how Mathena is treated in this book. And I'm still wrestling with this in my head. Was this intentional to make me feel something for Mathena's story? Or was it an oversight? And so I handed this book off to a friend of mine and told her I wanted her to read it because I want to talk to her about it. I'm not sure how to feel about that part of the story yet. But overall, I enjoyed it. And if you like historical fiction, I would uh, definitely recommend it for a quick read. Is this eventually going to make its way into my hands, I hope? If you would like. (laughs) You you say that I give you too many books for your TBR list, Carrie. You know, it's one of those things. I mean, I complain, but at the same time, I'm like, well, that sounds really good. And I'd like to read it too. So well, I I can get it back to you. Thank you. I mean, it sounds, you know, like kind of meaty and gives you a lot to it does. I mean, like I said, I'm still thinking about it. I'm still thinking about the, the character of the young Aboriginal girl and trying to figure out how she fits into that story and trying to figure out if the author, the way that she included her, if she did that on purpose, or if it's something that maybe might be offensive to somebody who's an Aboriginal. I'm not sure. Anyway, yeah. I need somebody else to read it and see what they think. Okay. Well, we're going to take a, another short break. And when we come back, we're going to be asking Chris Kepler her top five. We are back with Chris Kepler and with Carrie. We're going to ask Chris her top five. So your podcast is comedy based. And I'm I'm wondering, what is the top hardest thing about performing comedy? I think the hardest thing about comedy is not working at it too hard. You can't make stuff funny. You just have to put it out there. And I find usually you need to be very straight with it even if it's hilarious uh, or you might think it's hilarious sometimes comedy almost has to be kind of dry then the audience thinks it's really funny you just don't always know where you're going to get a laugh and doing a comedy podcast I don't have any feedback so Mm. that makes it a little harder most of the writers that I uh, narrate I'm happy to say most of them really enjoy it. And sometimes they get the feedback that, oh, you just nailed that. I had that recently. It's like, yay, I got some feedback. (laughs) Do you have one of the writers listen to it before you publish it to see if it hit the right note? No, I just put it out there. Like I say, most writers, I would say at least 80% like what I do with their works. Hey, Chris, I know sometimes like I, I think about this topic a lot in terms of what people find funny. And a lot of yeah. times, at least what people say to me is 
if I say something that they find funny, a lot of times it's because I've said what they're not willing to say. Humor <laughs> is the fact that I've said aloud stuff that they think, but they're like, oh, I couldn't say that. Yeah. So do you find that that's the case sometimes? Yeah, I think so. That you're, or you're saying it in a way that, that they wouldn't have thought about before. And honestly, you could just laugh at your own joke and everybody would laugh with you because you have the best yeah. laugh. Oh, yeah. And I do that too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Question number two. So you mentioned that you're an actor and you have an indie film called Two Pictures. Mm -hmm. So give yep. us a, a little summary of that film and tell us the top thing about that filmmaking experience that would surprise the average person. Oh, Two Pictures was filmed here in Seattle, and it's a story about how two very different people intersect and what their backstories are. It's an interesting film. I'm actually part of a church scene, and I provide the comic relief in that. <laughs> I'm a comedic character in it. I think what people would find interesting about filmmaking is the amount of time you spend just sitting around waiting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a huge amount of time just sitting around waiting. And it doesn't matter if it's indie film. In fact, last fall, I was a featured extra on a TV show. And it was produced here in Seattle, but the main actors were out of L.A. The director was out of L.A. Some of the crew were out of L.A. But it, it was the same experience. Obviously, they had more money because in indie film, I usually have to bring my own wardrobe. With two pictures, they did do my makeup. But with the TV show, it's, I didn't have to bring anything. They provided everything for my wardrobe. Uh, I spent time in hair and makeup. <laughs> And then I sat around and waited. <laughs> Is the waiting because they're like trying to set up the scene for the shot and like get all the cameras where they're supposed to be? What What's the source of the waiting? It's just, yeah, takedown setup. Things don't mm -hmm. go quite as planned. And so, it's, and because it's union, then you have certain times you have to take a break for the crew oh. and so it's like oh well we'd like to have you before lunch but then something happened and it, the scene before us took longer and it's like oh no now we have to have lunch break so now we weren't before lunch we were after lunch so <laughs> oh okay I guess I didn't yeah. think about the whole union so that is yeah, that all the like the members of the crew yeah they okay. that they're very strict about that and so you can end up with some really weird hours because of the crew has to be fed at this time and dinner has to be at the I ended up eating at midnight one day <laughs> because oh, wow. that was you know it was like okay this is the kind of time we have to feed the crew and if it's midnight then you eat at midnight <laughs> the amount of time just spent sitting around waiting when takes longer and setup takes longer and something doesn't go as planned and yeah there's a lot of something doesn't go as planned it sounds a lot like parenthood. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, it sounds like yeah. life, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So question number three, you are a wine lover, and I am yes. also a wine fan. Oh. So what is the top wine that you appreciate now that maybe wasn't your favorite when you first began drinking wine? 
I started out liking Cabernet and really Cabernet's not one of my favorites now. I, I go for a little lighter reds. I prefer, they're, they're hard to find, but if you can find a single vintage Merlot, those are good. I love Malbec. I'm a big fan of Spanish wines. I'm totally there with you. I will say when I started drinking wine and I, I mean, I drank stuff that now seems way, 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 way too sweet. And it was usually white. And I still, probably my go-to is a white wine, but I have found that I do like some reds, but I was always scared to order them before because there are some reds that I really don't like. And I was always afraid to order one because I didn't know what I liked and what I didn't like. But during this quarantine, one of the wine shops in town started a program where they would do a Zoom wine class every Saturday night. Oh, cool. And, And they would have three to four wines and you would go pick that up from their shop the day of and you would pour your own wines and there would be, they would have a class, but it was an interactive thing. And so there was a group of maybe three or four of us who were friends and we would split the wines up so that the price wouldn't be cost prohibitive. And so we would Google chat with each other on our phones while watching the Zoom class and Uh drinking our wine. I mean, it made my week, like every week waiting for this Saturday wine class. But what I found was in one way, we're just drinking wine and hanging out. But it also was super educational to me because I got to try so many wines and figured out what I like and what I don't like. And what I do like are Spanish reds because to me, they're fruitier. And they're a little lighter. But anyway, yeah, so I totally agree with you on that. Now, Washington State has a lot of vineyards up there. Is there a vineyard that you really like? Right now, we're a member of the Pepperbridge Wine Club. And they make really nice reds that are not real heavy. Washington, it's wonderful up here. All the wonderful reds. And there's some very nice whites, too. All I know is that my wine budget since March has gone through the roof. That's all I I know. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And it was already higher from 2016. It started going up. But, you know, March just skyrocketed. (laughs) So So you do different types of voices for narration. So what is your top type of voice to do and is that a voice one that comes easily or is it a voice that you just like the sound of I'd say if I'm doing a character some of the easiest voices to do are the high-pitched voices like a fairy uh yeah (laughs) or a child uh because actually as far as my singing voice goes I'm a high soprano and a really high soprano i was in part of the Seattle Symphony Chorus, and I was in the first soprano section. So I sing in the very, very highest. And so it's easy for me to pitch my voice very high, simply because that's where it actually lies, is very high. And it's fun to do because I just like pitching my voice very high. (laughs) Because that's that's where I sing at. Just hearing your voice, because you have talked about having a mature voice, I know nothing you, about singing. No, so you would, it would yeah. seem like that would be hard. It's because of, of my singing and where my, my singing voice naturally lies, which is very high, which it, no, it doesn't go with the mature voice. I should, based on what I look like and where my 
voice maturity is, I, I should be an alto. I'm I'm not. My singing voice does not match where I naturally when you look at me. Hmm. And that's that's not unique. Well, the last question is about one of my favorite topics, which is dogs. Dogs, And so I know that you have dogs, that you like to walk your dogs, and I'm also a dog lover. So what is the top funny quirk that your dog or dogs do when you walk them? Oh, my gosh. Right now, it's looking for bunnies. We have a wild rabbit explosion in our neighborhood. And they just love hunting for bunnies. Any big bush, they have to check out. It's like, there's a bunny in here? What's really funny is, because they're not hunting dogs, they're herding dogs. They're part Australian cattle dog, which means they're very smart. They catch a scent and they bury themselves in a bush. And then I'm standing there and I see the rabbit hop out of the other end of the bush and down the sidewalk. <laughs> And they're still buried in the bush going, it's here somewhere. It's like, guys, it left. (laughs) And I find that sometimes the smarter dogs are actually harder to deal with because they won't let it go. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I swear I have one that's like it's a hard drive in his head. It's like I've seen a bunny here before four months ago. It's really funny. The one has figured out that if you want to flush a bunny, and you can't really can't get to them because they're in a dense bush. You launch yourself on top of that shrubbery. Yeah, he's he's pretty smart. He's figured that out. So it's like, okay, I can't get to this bunny. Okay, I'm just going to jump on top of this bush. <laughs> well, I have one dog. And in many ways, she's like a diva dog. She's part uh-huh. Cocker Spaniel. And uh-huh. she won't take a regular milk bone treat. They have to be you know, super soft, you know, oh, meaty treats in order yeah. for her to take them. Wow. But when I walk her, she wants to drink out of any nasty looking puddle oh, yeah. that you see. And I mean, like she's dragging me toward this puddle as oh, if no. like she doesn't have clean water at home. She acts like she's yeah. not been given water in 24 yeah. hours or something. But this dog who is very, very picky about what she eats oh, doesn't have the same kind of standards when it comes to water. <laughs> Well, this has been fun, although I don't have anything to add to the dog stories. My cat just licks her butt and looks at me, so. (laughs) I mean, at least with my cat, she does stupid and embarrassing things, but it's in the comfort of our home, so nobody else gets to appreciate them. (laughs) So have you ever tried to put them on a leash and walk them? Oh, no. No, well, no. So we can get them, if we take them out on our deck, we put them on a leash. But it's like when you get a leash on them, their body stops working. And so the one, it's like they don't know what to do. So they forget how to walk or they walk, you know, they're like raising their legs really high in the air. I don't know. It's just embarrassing. So we can get them out on the deck, but that's as far as it goes. I guess our neighbors can see from their deck onto our deck. So Uh it would be entertaining for our neighbors, but that would be the extent of it. Well, Chris, it has been so fun learning about audiobook narration and just all the different facets that go into it. Oh, thank you. I had so much fun talking about it. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.